Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Welcome to the Bud Zone. Please give a listen as we talk with our buds in the faith about the present rule and reign of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords in his church and over his world. Greetings and welcome to this episode of The Bud Zone. We greatly appreciate you listening. As a reminder, the purpose of this podcast uh, is to profile the ongoing reign of our Lord as he builds his church and expands his kingdom rule. And because the Lord uses means to accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven, we speak with our buds in the faith. We speak with laymen, pastors, theologians, others who are doing the work of ministry. So today I am especially pleased to have a fellow Floridian, Pastor Jimmy Gill, joining me today. Greetings to you, brother. Greetings to you, bud. Thanks so much for uh, the opportunity to to talk. Well, I appreciate you taking time to do this. Um, You are, let's get the formalities out of the way, pastor of Christ Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Live Oak, Florida. And for folks who want to find out more, make sure I don't get this wrong. It's Website address is crpcliveoak.org. That's it. crpcliveoak.org. Now, I'll start with uh, reading your bio from your church website, and then you can augment this as you see fit. And we'll if anything how, needs we'll to see, be... Yeah, uh, we'll see how out of date that is. <laughs> I was going to... I had... Who, who did I have on, uh, I don't know, a month or so ago, and they said, oh, wow, we've got another child now. I need to, I need to update that <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, you, you need to get somebody on that. Yeah. All right. Well, here's, here's who you are, or here's who your website said you were, I guess, at, <laughs> at this point. Pastor Jimmy Gill is a native Floridian who was born and raised in Clay County, and that happens to be where I am. He earned a bachelor's degree uh, at Southeastern University in Lakeland and a Master of Divinity degree at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham. Before coming to Christ Redeemer there in Live Oak in 2018, Jimmy served as associate pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church, a CRAC church in Birmingham. You are married to Michelle, and they are blessed with five children. So what's incorrect? What needs to be augmented? It's 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 a miracle, a church website that's uh, up to date. (laughs) Okay. Um, Now, you know, the Lord's providence is just wonderful. You and I have had occasion to talk previously over the last few weeks as a result of an endeavor to start a church plant in Jacksonville. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, and it's been wonderful to get to know you. We have a lot more in common than we knew we did. Uh, but I have learned some of the wonderful providence uh, of the Lord in your life. 
uh, how you went from being a Presbyterian or a Baptist to a Presbyterian, how you kind of left, uh, SBC and moved to a CREC. And we're going to, we're going to talk about that in a bit, but I want to start with kind of my standard bud zone question that I usually ask. And that is, why are you a Christian? And Pastor, I, don't pull out the canons of Dort or the Institutes or, or Bavink or any of those guys. I, how did this happen to you? What's the story with your coming to Christ? Yeah, that's a great question. I like that question. And I, I really like, uh, so I'm not going to pull out a systematic theology answer, but uh, Cornelius Van Til, Van Til, the Reformed theologian, has a little essay uh, why am I a Christian? Uh. And he writes it to a hypothetical non-believer. And it's a great little booklet uh, that you can find on the web. And I love the way he answers the question. He, sa- he says, basically, uh, I'm a Christian because that's how I was raised. And uh, that sounds very unspiritual. Um, but I think as he goes on to explain what that, what you see in that kind of answer, which I would same, same for me. That's, that's how I was raised. I was raised by Christian parents who love the Lord, have a long lineage of of faithful, uh, godly, you know, Christians in in my family on both sides. And um, raised right there in, in Clay County, going to, uh, you know, Baptist churches that you know, well, and, uh, you know, but behind that answer that sounds very uh, unspiritual on the surface, uh, what you find is a deep understanding of covenant theology and the way that God ordinarily works through families to, to pass on his covenant blessings from generation to generation. Uh, and what you find is that so many Christians are Christians because of the covenantal nurture that they received from Christian parents, just doing ordinary things to teach their children the faith, to pass on uh, the the knowledge of God, and that um, we can get, you know, very academic or or intellectual, um, you know, about how how all of that works. But so much of the inculcation of the faith is a design feature of, of the way God made us, you know, is to learn by imitation. And, mm-hmm. and that goes with um, children watching their parents um, follow the Lord and children being raised in the identity, you know, uh, of, of loving Christ, trusting Christ. Uh, so um, faithfulness is, is often caught, you know, by, by children. From their parents, just like unfaithfulness, unbelief is often caught from unbelieving parents. So, I mean, that's the that's the simple answer. Um, of course, there's more more to exactly how that you know worked itself out. But um, raised in a, in a godly home with parents who love the Lord and extended family that loves the Lord, and uh, so it's just a tremendous blessing that I think so many people take for granted. Oh, I think that's right. I, you know, I'm thinking when you read scripture, particularly all those really boring genealogy passages, that is not boring to you. You, right. you are seeing providence unfold there because that's really what happened in your case. Sure. Um, and I, I don't, I, I think the church at large sorely 
uh, disregards the impact of that. I mean, the first institution God creates is the family. Yeah. Um, and, and everything is to flow out of that. And if you've got, if you've got unbelief there, like you said, you're going to adopt that unbelief. But if you have faithfulness there, then the Lord is going to be faithful on, on his side. Uh, I mean, he desires to save. I think we also tend to think he's, you know, he doesn't want to save anybody. Well, that's not who I read about in scripture. He's very gracious. He's eager to save. He's, um, so I, I, that's tremendous. And, uh, you went from curiously though, you know, that kind of Baptist theology that really wouldn't emphasize, um, covenantal faithfulness. Um, now you're on the other side of that and we'll talk about that in a minute, but how was it like for you growing up? I mean, you just naturally always believed you were a Christian because until you make a profession of faith, technically in the Baptist world, you're, and now today in the Christian nationalism fights, you, you weren't actually a Christian, were you? Right. See, thankfully, so many uh, God-fearing Baptists are terribly inconsistent with their theology. And so, uh, so many Baptist parents are actually providing really great covenant nurture yeah. for their children who are not supposed to be treated as covenant members yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's great. I'm, I, I love it. Um, I think that's just a, a natural parental instinct of Christian parents is to want to teach your children the faith and to want to pass along uh, the, the love of the Lord. And so much of it is really, like I said, um, it's caught as much as it is taught. And if children are seeing parents watching their parents love the Lord and submit to his word and love the church and, in, you know, seeking the kingdom of God, that, that's going to be contagious. Um, and it's not automatic by no means. Um, there are obviously, you know, sad cases uh, where parents, you know, do everything they can. And the child, you know, there are children that still turn away from that. Um, but, you know, for me, um, I was had a very typical, um, you know, kind of childhood experience in in a Baptist setting with parents who uh, were faithful in going to church and, you know, very involved in the ministries of the church and um, very, you know, uh, that was a big part of our lives growing up. Um, Had, you know, several, one of my major kind of heroes as a child uh, was my uh, grandfather um, on my dad's side, who was a, who was a pastor and Okay. Um, multiple pastors in, in the family. And so that was just kind of, um, you know, uh, a big deal in our, to our family and reinforced just by, uh, that, that presence and that influence. Um, but I, um, it was around, uh, I think Easter time, um, when I was, I think I was six or seven and, um, you know, began to ask questions about, uh, about uh, the cross and um, the passion, you know, the death of Christ. And, you know, my dad, you know, walked me through the, the sinner's prayer and the plan of salvation and all, all of that. And yeah. I, you know, you know, prayed to receive Christ as uh, good Baptist uh, children are taught to do and was baptized and um, raised, you know, in that 
continue to grow in my knowledge of the Lord and had good people in the churches that were, you know, investing in me. So um, it was uh, it was a real blessing. That that's tremendous, and I, I I applaud your comment sort of about the happy inconsistency with the theology, because that's a natural outgrowth of being a parent. You want your children to know the Lord, to know the faith, uh, not only for ethical and moral stamina in this kind of world that we live in now, but because this adds depth and honor to the Lord. And, you know, and I was talking to, oh, I don't know, last year, a guy who is a Christian filmmaker and he's Presbyterian, uh, elder in a Presbyterian church. And we were talking about pedo baptism and he often gets engaged with our Baptist brothers on, on this issue. And it, you know, I always go to the John MacArthur and RC Sproul debate, you know, on it, nobody won, but nobody lost, but nevertheless, he said in all the encounters he's had in talking with, with other bat with Baptists or Baptist ministers, only on one occasion did a Baptist pastor recognize what this guy was telling him because he asked him the question, well, do you teach your children to pray to Jesus? Well, I do. Well, don't you see the inconsistency with that? Why would you do that? If they're not actually Christian yet, and you need to wait on that profession or you need to wait on that Baptist. And he said one time in all the years he's been counseling on, on that topic, this guy said, you're absolutely right. I'll quit making them pray. Now that's just absurd. (laughs) So I applaud the happy inconsistency because the Lord's will is going to be done. Um, Yeah. And it is, it is unfortunate that, um, so there can be unintentionally or maybe intentionally in some cases where, uh, and this happens in Baptist and reform circles. Um, you know, there, there can be a, uh, you know, in, inconsistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it works out for the good, like in in a lot of cases. But if a child, like if a child, if your ideology, if your conception of um, salvation requires uh, an age of accountability and a, a fully formed, well articulated profession of faith in order to have a valid conversion experience. Um, then what happens sometimes, and, and it's very unfortunate, is that parents actually teach their children to doubt their own faith. And they're they're taught that their immature profession of faith is actually not good enough. Yeah. Um, he's like, no, you you don't know yet. You're you've not really understood yet. So you're not ready to be baptized, or you're not in, in reformed cases where the child is baptized but is withheld. Uh, you know, barred from the table and a profession of faith is the ticket that they have to, you know, they have to jump through that hoop to get access to the table. Um, you know, it's like, no, your, your faith is not good enough yet. And your immature profession is n- not gonna, not gonna cut it for our standards. And when you teach children to doubt whether they belong to the Lord, when you teach children to doubt, if, their faith is, you know, good enough or so to speak, um, that, that really turns out badly. Yeah. Um, well, what you're doing really, and this does happen in reform circles as well, like you said, but what you're actually doing is, is nothing 
any different than the man-centered kind of church growth methodology that evangelicalism has been, you know, established on for decades now. It's all about the person. But in this case, no, this, you know, in Christ, it's yes and amen. His promises are about him and his faithfulness it has nothing to do with the individual, what they've professed or what they haven't professed. Now you want the profession. We, you know, we need to make the good, the good confession, but yeah. um, the, the focus is on the person and it should be on the savior. It should be on Christ and, and his promises. Right. I mean, really, we, we often have a man-centered view of salvation, right? Have you received Jesus? But that's really the wrong question to ask. The, the question to ask is really, has Jesus received you? Yeah. And the Bible's pretty clear uh, about, you know, Jesus' attitude toward children uh, who are brought to him by believing parents. Yeah. He receives them. He welcomes yeah. them. He blesses them. Uh you know, and, and so uh, that that to me is um, that was a huge part getting ahead of, of myself, maybe a little bit. But that was a huge part of, of my shift from uh, a Baptist upbringing into the Reformed uh, tradition, especially the CREC, which places such a heavy emphasis on the inclusion of children within the covenant people and and you know, has an emphasis on welcoming young children to the table and, and making them a part of full, you know, full members um, of, of the church. So it's just really, yeah. really, I'm really passionate about that um, because I, I see, I see the, you know, how negatively that can, can work out when that's not the, the culture of the church or that's not the, you know, the, the view of the parents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously you want to, you want to launch into this cataclysmic sort of quantum leap that you made. That's a good point. So you can, you can discuss that more, but you went from SBC. You and I actually kind of share some, some SBC history, you know, in Clay County here. Yeah. Um, but, but you did go from this sort of Rick Warren, now I don't know what it was in the case when you were in the SBC church, but you know, the SBC now is sort of the, even though they booted Rick out, but the Rick Warren kind of fluffy winsome kind of Christianity. And now you are in the sort of Doug Wilson, CREC warrior type of Christianity, like at the other end of a spectrum. Um, yeah. And you're saying, and so I guess you also kind of defected from the inherent dispensationalism that pervades most of the SBC it doesn't do all of it. Um, but I know that in the churches that we've talked about offline, very dispensational, if they even teach anything like theology, if it's, it's really not that. So yeah. you got defected from dispensational to covenant theology. And you're saying, obviously part of that was when you became a father, you got to, you had to start thinking about what do yes. I do? That was a huge piece. So just like I, was talking earlier, you know, about I'm a Christian. I, I'm a Christian um, because the direct, uh, you know, sort of the most direct means of my being a Christian is my my parents, my family. Um, one of the one of the tools, one of the ways that God really um, got me to start rethinking everything was we had our first child, um, 
and that that causes you to uh, ask a lot of hard questions and really think seriously about what it's a very um, big change you know in anyone's life yeah. but especially for Christian parents what what is what am I going to do with this immortal soul that has been entrusted into our care this is about the most terrifying uh, thing that you know I've ever been given to uh, to, to, to care for and so that was a huge piece. Um, and like you said, I was raised at the time when the purpose-driven life was just the big, yeah. big thing, purpose-driven church, all of those, you know, were, uh, big. And, um, of course the, the left behind books were just, uh, busting the charts, breaking records. And so even if the church was not teaching on eschatology, people were getting in, indoctrinated yeah. with that you know left left behind uh, type view so that obviously is a pretty big shift but there was another piece when when um i went to college at southeastern university that's an assemblies of god uh bible college it used to be now it's just kind of a liberal arts university but i went but to at the, the time you went it was it was southeastern okay. bible college and um that's where i met my wife and we met because we were uh, some of the only Baptists on campus. Um, and so we were huddled in the back of the chapel uh, wondering what in the world is going on. Um, <laughs> well, praise God for sectarianism, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> made it easy to find each other. Yeah, right. And we ended up at, at a big Baptist church in Lakeland. Uh, had a good college ministry there. Um, but that we emerged from that experience uh, kind of charismatic. And so we were. Well, you got that glow about you, Pastor. I just yeah. Wanted... Yeah. I, you know, I kind of, <laughs> I know. Um, we had a charismatic kind of Baptist flavor coming out of, out of college. And then through the Lord's providence, a assemblies of God professor recommended Beeson to me, which is, uh, mm. you know, he's like, if you want to go to seminary and, you're not going to be Pentecostal. Um, you should go to Beeson. And that was a great blessing. Um, that was a great experience. But I was Baptist and, you know, all through seminary. And then I got hired as an assistant pastor in a charismatic Baptist church in Birmingham. Really? I was assistant pastor there. I had been there the whole time I was in school. And um, I was still Baptist and in all the way through seminary, but then we had a number of things kind of converged and our first child was born at the same time that I was, you know, about the same time I was ordained and, and called as assistant pastor at this church. And it was in the course of my duties as an assistant pastor at this church that there was, there were a couple of practical issues that really got me thinking um, and they all had to do with the sacraments. Of course, I didn't call them sacraments at the time. Uh, they were ordinances. Right. But, of course, ordinances are something you shoot out of a gun. So, <laughs> uh, but that's a story for another time. But the, um, these, it, it was questions about the sacraments that I didn't have any answers to. Like what kind and, of question? Like what's so, happening, the efficacy or the 
I mean, they were very practical. This was not some academic okay. intellectual game for me. Uh, we had a we had a number of people in the church who refused to join the church because they had been baptized as infants and they didn't want to be rebaptized. Okay. And so I got to thinking, what does that say? What is that position? You know, that's a very common uh, position mm-hmm. in Baptist churches, right? Um, that you have to be baptized by immersion following a conversion experience. What does that position say about the nature of the church? What does that position, that's a very sectarian position to mm-hmm. hold. You're, you're saying that the vast majority of Christians who've ever lived never had a valid baptism. We're, we're not actually members of the visible church. Um, that's a huge, huge and, and very divisive position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that trouble, that began to really, really trouble me um, as I thought through the implications of that. Uh, also, we had a number of uh, you know children who had grown up in the church in faithful families. They had made professions of faith, but they had never been baptized. And so it, it gave me pause. And I went to the leadership of the church and said, hey, why aren't these, you know, these kids have never been baptized? Why, why aren't these kids baptized? I thought we were Baptists. I thought that was a, a big deal to us. And it was like, oh, well, you know, if they want to or if the parents, you know, we just leave that up to parents or something like that. And I was like, what is baptism anyway? If it's just sort of something that we we let people decide if they want to or we let the parents decide if the kids are ready like what is baptism like what does it even mean and then um we had another interesting case where we had young children who had not been baptized who were taking communion and i went to the leadership of the church and i said isn't it usually the case that people need to be baptized before they take communion um, if these kids are ready to take communion, aren't they ready to be baptized? Uh, many of them were pretty young. And, oh well, we we don't really we don't really we let parents decide about that when they're ready to take communion. And I was like, what is communion? What what does this even mean? And the, the you're more, just carving out a polemical stance for yourself, aren't you? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, you can see, you can tell where. Obviously, it's obvious where I ended up. But, but what I realized, um, what I realized, is that the sacraments are not the most important thing. There are obviously other doctrines and and other things that are rank higher. If you had to, if you had to rank different, you know, doctrines or different things, um, the sacraments are not going to be in the top three uh, for sure. But because you can you can hold all kinds of different views on the sacraments, and, and that's not going to uh, keep you from going yeah. to heaven or something. I'm thinking but, thief on the cross, never baptized, uh, no Lord stable, you know. Right, right. Um, there was a I forget who said it. There was a great comment about the thief on the cross. Uh, one theologian said, uh, "Yeah, the Lord gave us the example of the thief on the cross, so that we wouldn't we wouldn't." despair uh, if someone we loved was providentially hindered from being baptized before right. they died. Right. But this theologian also said, but only one of the thieves was converted 
at you know sort of a deathbed conversion to give us a warning yeah not, not to make that like a general rule yeah no don't <laughs> but, be presumptuous on the basis of yeah, that yeah. yeah right but what i realized about thinking digging researching reading about the sacraments what i realized is that i didn't have any answers that really satisfied the questions i didn't have and and the the answers the standard answers from the baptist view were not satisfactory to me they did not scratch the itch or they did not help me really understand what the bible seems to teach about those things but the more i wrestled with those issues the more i came to understand that what you believe about the sacraments is really the, sort of the manifestation of what you believe about everything else because what you believe about the sacraments reveals what you believe about the nature of the church mm. and what you believe about the purpose of the church and the covenant and the, what is the new covenant and how's the new covenant different from the old covenant and what's not only what is the nature of the church but what is the purpose of the church and that's where eschatology comes in uh and so it was like as i started to try to understand baptism and the lord's supper the dominoes just kept falling wow but domino after domino after domino because they're there's like pulling on a string and, and and it just all unravels um that's what it was like for me and before long i had gone from <laughs> charismatic baptist to um a fire breathing you know uh pedo <laughs> pedo communing <laughs> reformed evangelical um, that, that is really astounding i mean because if you if you couple all the things together you're talking about pulling pulling that string and yeah. the first thing was you know fatherhood and, and yeah. your duties as a as a father so that forces you to see as a result of your own lack of damascus road experience but the generational faithfulness that the lord has shown you through your parents so you got that issue the father uh, yeah. being a father and yeah. then you're having to deal with sacramental meaning what's what's the implication of that and those things you pull the string and you end up a post mill i mean really that's <laughs> that's amazing the Lord works in very mysterious ways. And, well, how uh, big of a leap was it though when you got to that? It was just kind of like a no-brainer once you got to the issue of eschatology. Yeah, um, yeah, because to me, um, well, I was reading. I was reading all the wrong people. I, 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 mean, oh, I can I, see the Left Behind books on your shelf. Back. No, oh, maybe that's yeah, not them. No, cover those up. Um, no, I mean that facetiously. I, yeah. I had a friend, a former seminary classmate, who knew I was asking a lot of questions, and he was a little bit further ahead of me on the same, a similar journey. And so he was passing me um, all the usual suspects uh, within within the CREC circles. Uh, and so, and I got connected with uh, Rich Lusk, who's the pastor there at Trinity Pres in Birmingham, mm -hmm. and, and he was instrumental and helping me navigate and make sense of all of this. Um, and then God opened the door for, for me to come on, on board with them at Trinity. And, uh, that was, that was just 
one of the biggest blessings of my life. It, it changed, it changed everything about, you know, our view of family and parenting and, and ministry and, um, everything. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, every dimension of not only, you know, your orthoproxy, but the orthodoxy, it's just like the lights go on and now you can't, uh, you know, it's the same sort of thing when people finally understand doctrines of grace. Once you see it, then you'll never unsee it as you're, as you're going through scriptures, you're studying, as you're hearing messages, you don't unsee it. Well, the same thing here, you know, and and I've talked to people on the issue of paedo-baptism. I'm like, don't start studying baptism, start studying covenant, start there. There's something behind it. There are implications behind it. That's, that's hugely important because so many, like you mentioned the uh, MacArthur scroll debate. I think Doug Wilson refers to it as, uh, you know, paradigm bumper cars. Yeah. Um, it's like you're, you're talking past each other because you're operating on uh, two different kind of hermeneutical uh, assumptions about yeah. the relationships between old and new covenant. And that's really the kind of the crux of the issue is what's, what, what continuity is there from old covenant to new covenant? And where, what discontinuity is there, and that's where Calvin's um, Calvin's covenantal theology, I think, is just unsurpassed in mm. the way that he uh, relates sort of the covenants. And and uh, anyway, that's. Uh, but the the thing that um, I think is so important, like you said, once you see it, you can't unsee it in the Bible. But the thing that's really so important and so powerful is to see it lived out mm-hmm. in a congregation. Um, I mean, you can buy into the uh, sort of, you can buy into the doctrinal theological uh, points and arguments, but until you've actually been in a, a vibrant church where that is the, where, where children are being raised in in the a covenant identity and that's part of the the very dna of the church um and parents are being equipped to disciple their children not just evangelize their children um that is so potent that you'll you'll never that that is that is what draws people uh, a lot of people before they ever agree to the theological arguments wow they they see they see it and they see the fruit of it and they're just drawn to it and it just is like that i want that i want that for my kids i want that for my family how do i get that wow (laughs) that's why we want to that's why we want to plant a church in jacksonville that has that kind of uh dna to it and um so Okay, we'll that. talk about that in a minute. I want to back yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Question. No, that's okay. That's okay. Um, first of all, kind of a jocular question. So when you made this shift and you yeah. end up on the staff as a, as having been a former faithful SBC guy, yeah. and you end up on the staff of a Presbyterian church, how many disownments did you get? Did you get people that kind of said, okay, obviously he's gone to the dark side and you're out? Was that an issue with anybody? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, um, my my parents were very gracious, and 
have been supportive all along. We have a great relationship and uh, they see the fruit, you know, in our, in our lives and our children. Um, so that was never really a, a major point of, yeah. of conflict, thankfully. Um, the, the church that I, I had to go to the pastor of the Baptist church and basically just resign uh, and yeah. say, look, I don't know where I'm going, but I know I can't stay here in good conscience. I'm not a good fit here anymore. I don't, I'm not Baptist anymore, but I don't know what I am. <laughs> and, uh, to their credit, they were very gracious. They were very kind. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. Said, we're well, not enemies, but you, yeah, they you've got to be you, somewhere where. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to be pulling in the same direction. And so they said, we'll give you as much time as we can to find a place to land. And, um, I had a few seminary classmates who were very concerned, uh, that I was going to the CREC. <laughs> uh, some of them warned me very, very strong language, uh, about the, uh, the dangers of heretical teachings or whatever. Um, but that's, you know, that's about it. it I got books about the Anabaptists, historical books. There are problems on that side too, you know? So now yeah, yeah. your comments about, um, bringing children in and see, and that, and that, that, um, is really something that appeals to people, whether or not they understand the theology behind it. So I'm taking, uh, another jocular question at you. Uh, I'm, I'm taking it that you don't actually have like a separate children's church and all the big people are in the sanctuary for the important part. And they're off somewhere else because all of us in there are children <laughs> in a, in a sense. Right. Right. Um, I, I think it's, um, James Jordan who says that every baptism is a pedo baptism right. because Jesus says you have to come in faith. Like you have to come with faith, like a child, you have to become a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, uh, even an adult convert, um, has to, you know, has to become, um, be have the faith of a child and, and enter the kingdom as a child of God. Um, no, we don't, we don't, um, have a, a, a separate children's church or uh, anything like that. Our services are kind of loud uh, with crying children. And, and, you know, it's, it's good to provide. Um, I think it's good to provide a, a place for, for moms to take their children uh, so that they can, you know, you know, maybe watch through a, a window so that they can nurse or, it's a process to learn to train your kids in worship. Now, so yeah. much of that happens at home during family worship. The training really has to start there. Um, but churches have to be accommodating to people who are just trying to get their kids used to sitting in worship. That's a very difficult thing if uh, for any, for some children in particular. And if you've never done it before, it it's, you know, it's a hard yeah. challenge. But no, we want our kids, um, all the kids of the church, to be in the church, in the service, hearing the word, participating in the, in the service to the best of their ability, and um, growing up knowing that they belong here. Do you um, have, um, kind of changing gears a little bit, yeah. but do you have kind of a philosophy of ministry? I mean, is there like, something that just tethers you as to here's what I'm really about. 
I mean, and I'm thinking something like Paul, you know, in Colossians, uh, him, we, him, we proclaim, uh, warning and teaching with wisdom, whatever that, that every man can be presented complete. And I've always seen that as like Paul's philosophy of ministry. And I know other men that have different scriptural paradigms that really drive them. Is there something particular for you in your ministry? That's a really good question. I, I don't, I don't know if I have ever sort of pinned down um, one particular verse, but I think one of the major themes um, that I I was just sort of caught um, through being at uh, Trinity Pres and, and Birmingham and being as sort of part of the CREC and part of welcoming children into your midst, you have to you just have to be very hospitable. Um, hospitality has been defined as making room in your life for others. Um, and that's, that's hard. And, but that's a requirement for elders in the new Testament given to hospitality. Uh, Paul says in first Thessalonians, you know, it, I'm going to paraphrase here, uh, something like, you know, we, we shared not only the gospel, but also our lives with you. Yeah. Um, that was Paul's model of ministry. And in Hebrews 13, um, I take it that that was uh, written by, that was, it was Paul behind, whoever wrote it, it was Paul behind it. But um, he says, you know, you have to uh, remember your leaders who taught you the word of God and remember the outcome of their, their way of life. Mm-hmm. In order to imitate, uh, imitate your, your pastor's way of life, you have to be able to to know your pastor and see his way of life. And he has to have a way of life that you actually want to imitate. And so, um, and, you know, hospitality, being hospitable, making time uh, to be with people, uh, making, you know, making it a priority to have people in our home, uh, because that's how we have grown the most was by being in other people's homes and, and seeing how they raise their kids, seeing how they discipline their kids, seeing how they did family worship time, seeing their, just the, the atmosphere of their home. That's a very powerful, uh, very powerful influence on, on people. So that's, that's a, I don't know if that's like my philosophy of ministry, but that's a huge. Oh no. And it, yeah, it's not a trick question. Cause I've, I've asked other pastors that, and you know, guys are like all over the place. There are different things that the Lord seems to use to motivate them yeah. in their particular context of, of ministry in the church. When you, so you knew in college, essentially you're going to take a ministry path. The Lord's calling you into ministry. How different does it look now from what you thought it would look like then? Night and day. Yeah. Night and day. Um, I had the epitome of the Baptist called a ministry. Uh, it was actually at First Baptist Orange Park, uh, which is where I was as a, a teenager. My family was there, and I believe I'm I'm 100%. It was Dr. Paige Patterson, uh, the former you know yeah. SBC president, former president of Southwestern Baptist. Um, you know, he's been in, in, involved in, uh, controversy, but he was, he was acquitted, um, which is a whole, 
whole different. We'll do uh, another show on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, he, he came and he was the guest preacher one Sunday morning at First Baptist Orange Park. And he gave one of these great shotgun altar calls for yeah. anything and everything. You know, and he just went down the list. If you feel called to ministry, I want you to come forward. And I don't know what happened. Uh, my heart started beating out of my chest. And before I or my family knew what was happening, uh, I was standing up, walking down the aisle and uh, talking to my youth pastor, uh, saying, I, I think I'm, I think I've called the ministry. Uh, so that's, I was, uh, I guess I was about to start my senior year of high school. Wow. And at that point, um, I very, you know, very early on, um, all, even most of the way through, you know, all the way through Bible college, I didn't see myself as a, as a preacher. I wanted to be just kind of a, you know, like an associate pastor who was like involved with counseling or, or teaching, um, you know, Bible studies or uh, doing administrative type type stuff and never saw myself preaching a lot or being the kind of the, you know, the, the public, um, or the, the leader of the, the church, lead to speak, the lead pastor. Um, but the Lord really uh, has just totally transformed uh, my sense of ministry, my idea of what, what a pastor is and is called to be. And uh, a lot of that, uh, I had a preaching professor at seminary who basically showed me that I didn't have a very high view of, uh, of the spirit's ability to work through the word of God. And uh, he, he basically showed me, look, this is not about you. This is not about, you know, your rhetorical skills. Uh, this is, this is about the spirit working through the word. And uh, he really helped me get over a lot of those, you know, fears and, and reservations so that now I love, I love preaching. I love, I love teaching. Uh, but I also still really like conversations and, um, you know, talking with people in smaller contexts. Well, that was going to be kind of my next question. What, what do you enjoy the most about being a lead pastor? Is it the sermon prep? Is it the, you know, what? Um, I, I really enjoy preaching. Um, I think it was George Herbert in his uh, Diary of a Country Parson, maybe, um, or something like that, who says that the, the, the preachers, uh, preachers should see his pulpit as his throne or something like the preacher should have a view of his pulpit the way the king has a view of his throne. Yeah. Like love, like this is, this is what I'm for. This is what I'm here for. And this is where I belong. And this is, you know, my job. This is what God has given me to do. And, and I do enjoy preaching, but I do enjoy visiting people, talking with people. Um, I enjoy um, visiting people, you know, in the hospital, uh, that kind of, pastoral work kind of boots on the ground ministry yeah yeah, just being there for people um in their lives to help you know uh i think it's david pallison from the um, covenant counseling uh center you know who said that preaching is where you take the word and then you move from the word to the actual lives of of people you Mm -hmm. apply the word to the people to the situations people are in 
Uh, but he said counseling is just the, the mirror image of that, where you start with the situations that people are in and you bring it back to the word. And uh, that really helped me to uh, grow in my understanding of what pastoral ministry is all about. And so I enjoy both sides of that. All right. Now, because you've been wanting to talk about it, <laughs> a Jacksonville CREC plant. First of all, CREC is Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. Right. And I didn't, I should have done my homework. I, I think there's 150, 160 churches. And actually, not only in the US, they're South America, Europe. Um, so it, it has a global footprint. Yeah. Um, it has a, a reputation for a potent reformed theology. Um, but, and I became involved in knowing you as a result of how the Lord's providence with me. Oh yeah, this is a viable thing. We should want to see this kind of church planted, but here's the, here's the odd question. Maybe I, I looked at uh, a couple of articles I had saved over the course of the last few years. One of them was from um, Lifeway. Uh, and the other one was Hartford Institute. They do these religious studies, these surveys and things like that. And, and they both had pretty much the same um, data. 2019, it was uh, some 4,500 churches closed in 2019. Now, 2020 hits, and the Lord uses the means of COVID to greatly accelerate that shutdown of churches. But you're involved, and now you've got me involved trying to plant another church. I mean, what are you thinking? Yeah, kind right? of crazy. You don't, <laughs> you don't have to be crazy, but it sure helps. It uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, this is one of the questions that, um, that really changed my whole uh, perspective coming from, uh, you know, when I was in that sort of transition from being a Baptist into the CREC. Yeah. And, the question is, why are there so many churches and so little cultural impact yeah. of the gospel? Why is it that the Bible Belt South, which includes Florida, because there's a church on every corner in a lot of places of Florida, even though I lived in Alabama and I, I was quickly educated that Florida is not really part of the Deep South. Uh, well, I'm of, far enough north that it's kind of like South Georgia here. So I well, think, that's what they say, think, right? Yeah. The further in Florida, the further uh, south you go, the further north you are. Right. Yeah. And vice versa. But the question is, uh, how is it that for so long, for so many generations, we've had so many churches, but the culture continues to deteriorate to the point now where our, um, there's so much hostility to the gospel. There's so much hostility to the Bible. There's so much hostility in the culture, the broader society, to traditional Western civilization. You know, the foundations of our civilization are, you know, being attacked and, and eroded. How, how is that? What, what gives? Um, and what occurred to me or what I realized um, being exposed more and more to the CREC is that the CREC has a Kuyperian 
type of uh, approach to answering the question, what is the, like, what is the, what is the mission of the church? So Abraham Kuyper, of course, was a famous Dutch uh, statesman and, and theologian and newspaper editor and university chancellor. I mean, he did it all. Um, and he had a vision of the, the kingdom that encompassed all of life. And he was absolutely convinced that all of life, every aspect of life, is to be brought under the total lordship of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. that Jesus has crown rights to everything. Um, it, it, not only like geographically, the whole world, but also every aspect of, of human life. And that, that affects your eschatology big time, right? Um, when Jesus says in Matthew 28, uh, we often read that as go make disciples of the nations and interpret that as make a few disciples out of every nation. Mm -hmm. But that's not what it says. It says literally, Jesus said, disciple all the nations. Mm -hmm. He didn't just say, make a few disciples in every nation. Uh, he said, disciple all the nations. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you disciple a nation? Well, that means that every aspect of that culture, every aspect of that society is to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that, that's very different than the view of the church, which says that basically uh, the church's mission is to get as many people saved as possible uh, so that uh, they, as many people as possible can go to heaven when they die, right? That, that's if, if that is sort of the main goal of the church, well, I think we're, we're seeing the effects in our culture yeah. of abandoning, largely abandoning, um, abandoning the culture to just focus on evangelism, to just focus on uh, getting people saved before Jesus comes back, which is probably going to be very soon. And, and many in that understanding, and many people have such a pessimistic view of the mission of the church um, that they don't really expect the church to be really be salt and light in the world. Yeah. So, like many Christians are like, well, yeah, this is how it's supposed to be. Um, we're not supposed to win. I think John MacArthur had a famous sermon recently don't, where he's like, we don't win down here. Yeah. Yeah. But here he is like building, building schools, building colleges, building seminaries, fighting against tyrannical yeah, government. Exactly. And it's the winning. happy inconsistency again. The happy inconsistency. He is winning. He is winning cultural battles left and right more than, than many uh, reformed, uh, you know, uh, churches that have a more uh, kind of optimistic eschatology, so to speak. But that to me, that Kyperian vision of all of Christ for all of life is, um, is what is lacking in so many churches, whether they're Baptist or whether they're Reformed or whether they're any other Protestant denomination. Uh, that to me is what the CREC has 
really uh, done a good job of trying to re recapture and reclaim. And um, no, I think that's right. And just so, and I know you know it, and I just want to point it to people as well. Uh, Kuiper Stone Lectures, where it yes. gives that sort of holistic Calvinism for mm-hmm. all of life, but it's yep. not really just the doctrines of grace kind of Calvinism. It's the whole worldview that is represented by Christ is Lord. What what are the yeah. implications of that? So folks need to go and find that and probably read it at least once a year uh, to grasp yeah. this. And you'll see the sphere sovereignty topic. You'll see all that come up. Um, but do you think that, you know, you're mentioning this issue of evangelism, which is focused individually. Certainly we understand that dimension yeah. of it, yeah. but it, it, it seems to be because the church for decades now has been so uh, focused on individual salvation. When you look out at the world and what they see as a secular environment, all those people are individuals doing their thing too. And so a sort of pietistic response is supported by this dualism of sacred and secular. Um, Absolutely. How does that, I mean, can you dismantle what I'm trying to say? Um, well, there's a, a lot, um, there's a lot there. Um, I think that there is this unfortunate sacred secular, uh, dualism in the way that a lot of people think. Um, uh, unfortunately, this is really big in a lot of reformed churches these days, mm-hmm. this sort of radical two kingdom, yeah. uh, eschatology or this way of conceiving of the relationship of the uh, the church to the world and the kingdom of Christ. Uh, it, it's as if, it's as if the kingdom of Christ is, is completely out of touch with human culture. Well, spiritual only kind of yeah. dimension. Yeah. Spiritual only. Yeah. Christ is Lord, but he's only ruling over his church and doesn't, you know, Christians aren't really supposed to be, uh, you know, pressing uh, the Lord, the crown rights of, of King Jesus uh, into every every sphere uh, of of cultural you know cultural institutions and um, government uh, surely in that view. So I, I think there is a major there is a major temptation or a major problem with with Christians kind of uh, just you know the the more pessimistic uh, dispensational premillennial view sees uh sees this world as god's vietnam uh where you're just hoping to get on the last chopper out and it's all you're supposed to lose um whereas you know the even a lot of reformed churches um have a have a view of uh the church's mission in the world that's um limited like you said very pietistic just to um you know individual piety without um, any kind of vision for transformational, um, Mm -hmm. the gospel transforming the culture as the leaven, right? The parable of the, of the leaven, Mm a little bit of leaven, leavening the whole lump. Um, And the, the parable of the mustard seed where the kingdom is the, the, the smallest tree that grows uh, to the greatest tree that um, fills the whole earth and the, you know, all the other, 
birds of the air coming and nesting in its branches and that sort of thing has been missing from from many, many yeah places. and the failure to teach that you know culture is downstream from religion you know politics is downstream from culture and culture is downstream from religion and yeah. all those people out there in that sort of secular arena that this dualism projects those are religious people they are yeah. worshipers yeah. they have the wrong god the only way you convert that is by the gospel um and it kind of starts with what happened with you you know yeah. faithful parents that raise you in a faithful way and and that leaven expands but it doesn't expand if you're only taught that the church is your boundary for your religious life or your spiritual life or that's you know um there are other implications to it and that's what's helpful about uh kuiper with this you know um every even luther you go back and and read luther luther really did a wonderful thing in helping saints understand that their calling in life as a job is a sacred task you're doing this for the sake of the lord and that influence spreads like the 11 you know that you're talking about with the parables right i mean people a lot of people only think of justification by faith when they think of martin luther and the reformation but the doctrine of vocation is actually the other side of the coin from justification by faith because you know luther basically said look you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, mm-hmm. uh, which means that God does not need your good works, but he said, your neighbor does. Yeah, uh, your vocations, your jobs, your relationships—that's how God works in the world, and that has tremendous meaning, tremendous significance in the plan and purposes of God. Is you doing your menial task? You know, Luther said that the God milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. Yeah. And that yeah. these vocations are the masks that God hides behind to answer our prayers for daily bread or whatever it else it is that we pray for. Yeah. Um, and I think, unfortunately, many American Christians have bought into the lie of the, uh, the, the, pri- the privatization of, of the faith. You know, where, where you kind of have this society is like this public-private split, and there's like a neutral public square where religion is is not allowed, and the state is the referee over this neutral uh, public yeah. square. I mean, it, it, this kind of thinking is just so much a part of the air we breathe. And we, yeah. we don't even realize how indoctrinated we are uh, by secularism and these assumptions that color the way we, we read the Bible. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we, that is the toughest thing to be able to like, what are my presuppositions? How do I, how do I figure them out? A lot of times I need other men telling me, Oh no, you need to look at it this way. Not just with doctrinal issues, but with other very practical, uh, matters in, in your vocation. Um, so yeah, the, those presuppositions are helpful or problematic, and, and you you got to measure them and source them in Scripture, um, and that that takes time. It's amazing that the Lord will take and and mature people at different rates. So you you've got to show a lot of grace to people. If you're discipling someone who you think, why don't you get this? 
Well, you show grace. You were there at one point. So absolutely. Um, absolutely. so let me go back to the um the CREC thing and the, and the church plant. Uh, and you and I have talked about this and we've got some other initiatives that we're considering, but there is this brochure or this flyer from the CREC called what to expect in our CREC church. I got mine from, from Yuri Brito at, at Providence. Cause my son is going to, um, to his church there in Pensacola. Yeah. It talks about, um, a number of things, liturgical worship, and we're not going to get into all of these, any of these really. Liturgical worship, covenant renewal worship, weekly communion, worship conversation, psalm singing. Um, it doesn't say anything specifically against Hillsong, but I know that it, it's not part of it. Uh, posture and worship, and, and of course, the word being read and sung and preached, creedal statements and those kinds of things. It talks about the optimism for the future of the church and also what we've been discussing a little bit uh, about cultural engagement. Um, and, and maybe you've already sort of answered this, but for people in the Jacksonville area that may be comfortable, they may be genuine Christians, but they may be comfortable in sort of a vanilla kind of evangelical church. Is there one of those categories that might most necessarily appeal to them? Or, or would it be what you said before with regards to those that have children? What are you exposing them to, uh, in your church? But I don't know. What are your thoughts? I'm going to put a link on this podcast to that little PDF from the yeah. CRBC because it's really useful information. But for this church plant endeavor in Jacksonville, why should people who've been in a church for 10 years or two years or whatever, why should they maybe consider this? Well, uh, all of what I've already said, of course. Yeah, right. Uh, but I, I want to since you've given me the opportunity, I'm not going to pass up the chance. To, you wouldn't come on unless I'll let you talk about this, right? Well, no, <laughs> of, course, of course not. I mean, um, I here. So here's a, here's a question to, for any, anybody who's attending, attending a church, um, any Christian anywhere. Uh, if God wrote um, a hymnal, uh, an inspired, infallible hymnal, and he dropped it, you know, in, in your lap. Um, wouldn't you think that it would be important uh, to use that hymnal in your worship services at church and in your family devotions at home? I mean, would that be at least kind of given priority over other good, uh, you know, hymns uh, that are, are written by um uh, by, by Christians, you know, down through church history. And, and of course, what I'm talking about is the Psalms, the Psalter. Yeah, yeah. Right. This, and this is the, this is one of the, this is one, one thing, another thing that really transformed my understanding of worship and of um, just a, a, so much because everything is in the Psalms. Um Everything is in the Psalter. Every aspect of life is touched on in the context of prayer. And so, but th this is God's inspired hymnal. And how many churches are singing psalms at all? And what does that say? What does that say about our, <laughs> our view of worship or our view of scripture or, um, our view of prayer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
this is really significant because the Psalms, like I said, the Psalms touch on everything. They really do. And people, you know, a lot of people don't know that um, one of John Calvin's big, big uh, desires was to teach the people of Geneva to sing the Psalms. And uh, when they, when they resisted his attempt uh, to, uh, to use the Psalms in, in worship, uh, he just said, okay, well, I'll just teach them to the kids. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, you know, I'll just teach them to the next generation. If you guys don't want any part of this. So he was instrumental in getting the Genevan Psalter put together. You know, he commissioned some of the brightest poets and musicians of, of Europe at that time uh, to put together 150, uh, you know, they're not, they're not like chanted word for word, but they're, you know, beautiful, like metrical type uh, paraphrases of the Psalms. And uh, that's the mother of all, you know, metrical Psalters really. And it changed, it, it changed Europe. Um, You know, there are Christians in, in England or elsewhere were, you know, would be killed if they were caught with a with a copy um, of the of the Geneva Psalter or something, you know, based on the Geneva Psalter. This was seditious. Uh, this was an act of sedition, and monarchs, you know, were threatened by this. Um, singing the Psalms is what prepares Christians uh, to fight and and to build for for God's kingdom. Yeah. Uh, cr- so many Christians throughout the history of the church have gone to their gone to their death deaths singing the Psalms, and it got so bad during the uh, like the reign of Bloody Mary in England uh, and other you know other monarchs who were persecuting Protestants uh, that you know when they were like burning people at the stake they would be they would be um, singing Psalms, and so they started cutting their tongues out before they would. Uh, light the fire <laughs> because it was so it was so potent it was so contagious yeah. and it it really does teach us how to pray teaches us how to worship the Psalter teaches us how to uh, how to fight how to resist tyranny there are war songs in there um, there are teaches us how to grieve teaches us how to how to die teaches us how to live uh, teaches us how, how to think about children uh, but, but we have to skip the imprecatory ones, right? Those aren't winsome. You can't. Hey, I mean. It, oh, no, they're inspired. I'm sorry. Never mind. Yeah. Yeah. So the, that's, that's a good question because a lot of people choke on those words. Uh, they stick in people's throats. Uh, and the question is, um, is this inspired scripture? Yeah. I appreciate um, your comment about Calvin, too, because I, I yeah. had read an essay or two that only briefly discussed the issue of the Psalter that he had done. And apparently I didn't know this, but he was not particularly musical himself. So he did, like you said, hired poets and musicians to take the, the hymn or the Psalms and, and put them to music. Um, you know, Luther would have been a little bit different. Luther was profoundly musical and uh, of course wrote hymns, you know, well, Um, in many of his, Hymns are based on psalms. Oh, it's, right. They're, they're just looser paraphrases. Yeah, uh, but they're very much based on on the psalms. 
when, uh, you know, apparently Calvin, when he deals with music in, um, in the institutes, he does it under the heading of prayer. And you, you made that point. Uh, you know, these, these are prayers, uh, which is precisely how Calvin handles it in, uh, you know, in the institutes, we don't think of it that way when we're singing, because most of the songs in the typical evangelical church are kind of either me centered or the repetitive seven eleven stuff, or even, you know, Jesus, my boyfriend kind of nonsense. We don't think our singing is a prayer, but that's and, what these yeah. are. And a lot of Christians now, a lot of churches now see the, the music part of the service that in, in many churches that is the worship, right? The only yeah. part of the worship service that's worship is the music part, right? Um, and the worship music is almost entirely uh, for the for the purpose of producing an emotional effect, right? That uh, softens people up to whatever the preacher is going to say. So it's all about sort of creating this emotional mood or experience that either gets you really, really, you know, really, really pepped up or gets you kind of, you know, introspective or uh, whatever, so that you're sort of primed for the, for the sermon, which is the main act in most churches. But um, yeah, I think, I think the, uh, this the psalms um really do uh challenge us and teach us uh it, so this is a good litmus test of do do we like the psalms or not if um if we don't like the psalms then the problem is with us yeah <laughs> and our yeah. definition of beauty our definition of what is true and right and good. And I think that, you know, we have in the church, every, every, most every Christian I've ever talked to has a very subjective uh, view of beauty. Uh, we don't really buy into relativism when it comes to truth or morality, but most Christians are completely relativistic when it comes to aesthetics and beauty, because beauty mm -hmm. is in the eye of the beholder, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's not. And that's where relativism sleep, seeps in to our morals and to our, to our, you know, our doctrines and in our view of truth. Yeah. yeah. And to the worship. Yeah. And so if we're singing the Psalms, if we're singing songs that God says are beautiful, that's going to recalibrate our conception of beauty. That's going to train us to think of beauty the way God thinks of beauty and to think of, you know, so I think that's a big, that's a big part of cultural renewal. Um, not just checking that box off of making sure we're, we're doing our worship the right way. It, it has huge ramifications downstream. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So with the, the Jacksonville church plant endeavor, what, what's happening? Yeah, it's exciting. It really is. Um, there, uh, are, there's a growing interest in the Jacksonville area. Um, we have a couple in, in the Navy that have been over there 
they've been trying to spread the word and and raise you know uh, put out uh, feelers and make make connections because they want to see uh, a CR they they were ministered to and and loved on by a uh, CREC church in Annapolis while they were at the academy and they have a heart to see a CREC congregation planted in every major Navy town so that sailors and airmen can uh, can go anywhere and have a good, solid church to be a part of. And uh, so they have been doing a lot of uh, a lot of the spade work, a lot of the uh, just praying and, and working toward this. And it's the Lord is blessing and it's beginning to pick up momentum and, and more people are finding out about the CREC in general and are interested in a Jacksonville, you know, a church plant in the, the Metro Jacks area. So we're actually going to be holding some interest meetings in the month of October. Um, for anybody who's, who's uh, curious, anybody who wants to find out more, there's no, you know, you show up. It's not like you're, you're committed. It's yeah. an opportunity to, to sing together, to eat together and to kind of, I'm going to be over there um, for these meetings and, and trying to cast a vision uh, like what we've been talking about just just now, but also kind of what is it what does it look like um, to have this uh, all of Christ for all of life vision? What could that look like in Jacksonville? And um, just you know try to see how the Lord how the Lord's going to bless that. Well, one of the things I was going to say that's not included in the bio of you that I read earlier, and I, I don't guess it's an official. Um, uh, position that you've got, but you're a CREC church. You're the pastor of a CREC church and you kind of have taken under your wing, the, uh, desire to see church plants, uh, in the North Florida area. So you've got one, uh, underway in Tallahassee. You've got another yeah. group that you you're working with in Gainesville. So yeah, you're, you're kind of, uh, spread out supporting that as well as ministering to your own your own church, but you might need to change that bio and say, you know, church planting guru for North Florida or Florida or whatever, just however. Um, um, I am no, I am no guru. I'm, <laughs> I'm just here where the Lord has put me trying to, uh, trying to help, you know, build the church, advance the kingdom the best I can. Okay. Um, so, so two final questions and because I want, I, I need to not infringe on your time. Um, when you look at the church at large, uh, overall, not just denominationally, but the visible church, what, what do you see that most encourages you and what, what most concerns you? And we may have already covered some of this ground, but, but what encourages you? Uh, I think the past few years have, um, got a lot of, a lot of people have sort of, um, started to realize come, come to the realization that the track that, you know, that things are not, things are not good. Um, now that that's discouraging in some ways because, you know, uh, the last few years have, uh, opened and exposed, uh, fault lines and, and other mm. problems that had gone undetected. Maybe they were well camouflaged and then circumstances sort of exposed all of that. Yeah. Uh, made people pick a side on this or that issue. And, and you kind of got to see people's true colors. Um, so that's discouraging in some way to see more and more 
churches dwindling and and dying or sliding you know sliding woke or uh, wanting to maintain cultural respectability and so they just keep um, moving further and further away from the scriptures uh, to to try to try to maintain um, you know be in the favor the good graces of cultural uh, elites or trends or something so that's discouraging but in the midst of all of that I think there's been a real uh, you know coming to coming people a lot of people coming to realize uh, we, we need to get we need to get serious and we need to make some some big changes and you know we this is an opportunity yeah this is really an unparalleled opportunity for the advance of the gospel and and the growth of the kingdom because there are so many people that are searching there for truth there's so many people that are hurting um, and and there's so many opportunities uh, for Christians and churches uh, in this you know pretty uh, discouraging uh, social situation that we're in. Um, and if we can see it that way, if we can see it as an opportunity, then I think, you know, we're poised uh, to really do a lot of good, a lot of good work. I, I absolutely agree. I think that one of the things that we fail to understand when we, it, it, well, if people actually read scripture and learn scripture, you start seeing the patterns of how the Lord works. So he, he judges and the judgment is severe and it's real and it's, it's serious, but for his faithful, there's always that remnant. And what does he do with them after the judgment following the judgment comes the grace of restoration and, and the grace of reformation. And it, this cycle just, I mean, we've got, uh, you know, a whole other book there at the front of the Bible that people tend to avoid that tells us here's what the Lord does with his people. Um, and it's, it's, uh, his faithfulness to his covenant that prompts him to do that rather than just rain down, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah like judgments. Um, so yeah. there is a great deal of hope and, and, uh, but, but you got to know how to read scripture and you've got to know how to, you've actually got to read scripture and then you got to know how to kind of understand it. Um, yeah. And it's during the times of the church's exile that she's often most fruitful, most fruitful. Right. Now, I don't think we should be seeking to be exiled. No, uh, some, I think we some, are, <laughs> but we're there, we're getting there, Yeah, you know? And so you read stories like, you know, Daniel and Esther and uh, all of these different folks had just an Joseph in, in Egypt. Uh, it was in the midst of their exile that they had some of the greatest impact on the broader cultures mm -hmm. and world that they were in. And so we shouldn't be seeking to be exiled or marginalized uh, in society. But if we're there, uh, we can take comfort that, uh, you know, God often does, uh, does incredible things with his people when they're faithful to witness in the midst of in the face of cultural hostility yeah. uh, or, or whatever the case may and, be. And go read the Psalms. It's just all over the Psalms. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, my last question, and it's not the one about being a man of Issachar 
and not having cable TV. Uh, I don't need to know about that. Um, but it's this, if there, you know, is there a question I should have asked you? I, I'm not good at this, but is there something you wish I had asked that I didn't? So ask it yourself and then give us all the answer to it. No, um, the, the, the man of Issachar in cable TV though is, uh, is, oh, well then go with that. Cause I so, had that jotted down. <laughs> so let's just, let's just do that one. Yeah. Um, Can I be a man of Issachar and not subscribe to cable news? Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, the men of es- Issachar didn't have cable TV. So well, we've got by, a contextualized pastor. So <laughs> by definition, the answer is yes. Um, and I would say that, uh, uh, watching cable TV probably reduces reduces your likelihood of becoming a man of Issachar these days. But seriously, if you look at uh, people like C.S. Lewis or other figures throughout history who have, it's you read what they wrote, you read that hideous strength, for instance, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis, and it's like the guy had a crystal ball. Like, he called everything. He saw it all coming. And you wonder how in the world, how the world, how in the world does somebody do that? How did he do that? He didn't have cable TV. I think one of the big answers is he understood history. He knew history. Uh, and he understood people. He, he knew history. He knew, understood people. And he understood, he understood scripture. He knew he knows how he knows how God works, and you know most most uh, Americans we're we're real bad about knowing history. Um, yeah. We you know we think history started in 1776, but um, he he was just incredibly prescient and had such foresight and and wisdom to see where trends were going to go, and because he understood what made people tick. And he, he knew patterns, you know, from, from history and he, he understood the truth of the Bible. So, um, I think, uh, those, those are the kind of the key ingredients that we need to, we need to recover a full, a fully biblical worldview and, uh, understanding of church history and of, of world history. And, uh, I think that's, I think that's, that's a much better, uh, much better way to to become a man of Issachar. So, <laughs> well, I you know I might aspire to it, but I, I know I'm not cut out for that. But uh, I thought it was a pertinent question in, in the event somebody hadn't thought of it because I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Pastor, thank you so much. I have really enjoyed this, and uh, I'll put links to your church website. I'm going to put that. Uh, link to the CREC, you know, what about us, uh, thing, very yeah. helpful, very provocative. Um, and, uh, I look forward to speaking with you as I know I will on other, uh, platforms, uh, with regards to this church plant. So yeah, folks Thank you can so much. please be praying for you be praying for this church plant endeavor. Uh, the Lord's going to favor this according to his will. And that's what we, we will desire. And, uh, I really appreciate your time. This has just been fun. I've enjoyed every conversation I've had with you. And I forgot the story about you being charismatic. So or oh. former, <laughs> but you do have that glow about you today. So 
Well, thank you so much, but it's been a pleasure to, to get to know you and a pleasure to come on your, your show. So, all right. Thanks so much. Thank you. This concludes today's episode. You are now leaving the bud zone. I appreciate you listening and I hope you'll continue doing so. I also hope you'll share these episodes with others who might be edified and encouraged by them. And just a reminder, no doctrines have been harmed in the production of this podcast. Remember, Christ has overcome the world. Go live like it. God bless.